How much is a body worth? Well, according to some websites, based on just your chemical elements, about 160 bucks. Now, if you want to sell other parts of you, which I'm not really advocating, I'm just saying, <laughs> according to websites, about $45 million if you take all the organs and everything. So how much is a body worth? How much are you and I worth? How often do we know our value or live into our worth? Dale Carnegie, the famous human relations guru, was often quoted as saying, a person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language. And that's probably true because it solidifies for the person what is a deep hunger for the human condition, this hunger to be known. This hunger to experience a deep sense of value. I think a large part of our stories, and we all, all have that one moment where maybe our value was called into question, or that moment that stuck with us in many ways that we felt labeled or branded or devalued. I have one of those stories. I think I've shared it before, but it was one of those stories from childhood. In Iowa, as a matter of fact, in Marshalltown, Iowa, where we were staying with my grandparents for the summer, and I went to go play with a group of guys, baseball, that I had found the day before and thought that they were my crew, my posse, my gang that I was going to hang out with on our bikes. I found them at one of the houses and asked if I could play baseball, and one of the leaders of the gang came out and said, no, you can't play. You're no good. Well, I carried that with me for that day. But what I didn't realize was I carried that with me for much of my life. Much of my life had become this exercise in either trying to overcompensate for that message or I simply accepted it as a fact and I shied away from taking risks or attempting anything challenging simply because I felt I was no good. And if I felt I was no good, I would probably fail. So why even try? Much of my overcompensation manifested itself in ways feeling as if I could or should do more. I lived as a constant high achiever, always striving to be the most successful in everything I did. And the problem was, it's a bottomless pit. It's just an empty hole. It could never be filled. And the hole of I'm no good was just endless and endless and endless and exhausting. And competing with everybody and competing with life and feeling like if somebody always won, I always lost, and I could never celebrate with them, I could never cheer with them, because it took something away from me. So those messages stay with us. And every now and then, it still has that little place in my heart, in my soul, where it kind of wedges itself in. And I hear that, well, you're no good. And it kicks in. I'm in recovery, I like to say. And I'm doing better than I was by the grace of God and by some own personal work, but it's still a journey. Frederick Beekner, in his novel, or his memoir, novelist and Presbyterian pastor, Frederick Beekner, he shows a very tough story of what can happen when that sense of worthlessness is more than one can take. One Saturday morning as the sun was rising, he tells that he and his brother Jamie, they woke up very excited. Their parents had promised to take them to watch football that day. So the rest of the family was still sleeping. The brothers decided to stay in the room and amuse themselves for a while while the family slept. While they played together, they noticed their father quietly open the bedroom door and look in. And after a while, he disappeared and he closed the door behind him. 
Sometime later, there was this piercing scream from the downstairs. The boys looked out on the driveway, and they saw their father lying outstretched on the gravel driveway. The blue smoke was drifting from the open garage door. He had gassed himself on that day, killed himself. So Beekner writes later in his memoir. He says, it wasn't for several days that a note was found. It was written in pencil on the last page of Gone with the Wind, which had been published that year in 1936, and it was addressed to my mother. And my father had written, I adore you, and I love you. And then it said, I am no good. Give Freddie my watch. Give Jamie my pearl pin. I give you all my love. It's a hard story. It's a tragic outcome. And maybe they don't end all that way. And thank God they don't. But along that continuum are folks who have bought into the story and have bought into that lie that they are no good, that they are of no value, that they are worthless. And it needs to be exposed really for what it is. It is a lie. And it's absolutely counter to the gospel message that we know to be true. You've probably heard the phrase, shore things up. It's it's a phrase that derives from a time when beams or timbers were used to prop up a structure or to provide support. And so we would say, we're going to shore that up. Well, I think there's ways that we try to shore up our identity to stave off the feelings of worthlessness and the sense that we're no good. We try, try to shore up or prop up our identity through this. We manufacture facades of strength and success. I've actually watched that and seen that. I have been in meetings with people and I have been on boards with people. And, and once you're in recovery, as they say, you know, as the old saying goes for people in recovery, you spot it, you got it. Or you got it, you spot it. And I can always spot these people who I think are trying to shore up this sense of worthlessness, especially the ones with this facade of strength and success. And I want to pull them to the side afterwards and say, listen, it's okay. You don't have to be that way. We cover up weaknesses. We may have to keep looking strong and keep up a front. We look to others for a sense of validation and self-worth, hoping that they'll give us that identity as we seek to please others. But the problem with that is it's exhausting. It's suffocating. We look outwardly to achievement, this, this way to prop up our fragile identities with external forms of success and accomplishment. Now, I want to clarify. I'm not talking about these sort of peak moments of attainment. You know, we've got, this is graduation time, and we cheer graduates on, and we, we celebrate them, and that's all good stuff. I'm not saying people shouldn't strive to do their best by any means. I think what it means is when we try to prop up our identities with those forms of success and accomplishment, then it gets a little bit tricky, then it gets a little bit precarious, and then we can be in for a hard fall. I found this, too, that the quest to prop up one's identity with these types of overcompensation can often lead to a couple extremes. We either become very anxious in our attempt to appear successful and accomplished, or we become very arrogant as a way to protect ourselves from anyone seeing our weaknesses and incompetencies. I had a conversation with a person this past week. He had asked to meet with me, and it was actually a, a colleague, a pastor, and um, struggling, struggling with issues of self-worth, struggling with issues of value, 
struggling to find his place, to find a sense of call. And I've heard his story before, and I've gotten the sense that he just has not received any validation. He hasn't received any sense of pleasure from those who have been in his family, even from his significant people in his life, namely his father. I've heard his story. At the end of our conversation, it was fascinating because he just came around and he says, you know, I am an arrogant person. And I wanted to say, I think we found something we can agree on. (laughs) But he says, I am an arrogant person. I'm very arrogant, and I know that, and I don't want to be that, but I'm a very arrogant person. But where he could trace that arrogance back to is his whole sense is, I am scared half to death that I will be found out. I don't know how many of you watched, ever watched the movies Lethal Weapon, you know, Mel Gibson, Danny Glover, kind of a nice franchise. Some of you are probably not into those kind of movies. But I heard an interesting report on NPR interview this past week. The writer and director of those movies, who literally made his living on all those movies, if you will, and has actually written a new one right now, the one with uh, Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling. I don't know the name, but he's written that. So he's actually done very well. But as he was being interviewed he talked about his struggle that as those movies became big, Lethal Weapon, Lethal Weapon with Mel Gibson and Danny Glover, he said, my biggest fear was that I would be found out to be a fraud, that I would be found out to be a fake. And so he said, what I did was I had big parties at my house. I had these Halloween bashes. And he says, everyone from Hollywood, everyone that had a name was there. And I'm walking around, he says, and everyone's having a great time. He says, the only thing I can think of is how long is it going to take before they find out that I really am a fake? You see, it hits everybody. It hits all of us. And I would say that a lot of us walk around with that sense of when are they going to find out that it's just all a facade. Now, interestingly, Jesus identifies with our quest. He was faced with this call upon his life, this mission before him. Jesus needed to have his identity deeply anchored and rooted in God's deep abiding love, a love that bestowed upon Jesus his true identity, gave him this courage to be his truest self. And his identity was solidified in these words that I read, You are my son, whom I dearly love. In you I find happiness. You see, I think it's at this decisive moment when he's moving into God's call upon his life that Jesus receives this identity from beyond himself and he receives it from God's love and God's joy and happiness over his existence. One pastor, Trevor Hudson, uh, describes it this way. Because of his inward assurance that he is the beloved of God, he is consistently his own person, able to pour himself out in extravagant self-giving, Not once throughout his life does he need to prove himself, win the approval of contemporaries, or be involved in any manipulative power games. Knowing who he is, he invests himself single-mindedly in the realization of his Father's kingdom vision for our broken world. What would it be like to go a week without feeling as if you have to prove yourself to win the approval of your contemporaries or maybe even worse, to be involved in any sort of manipulative power games. That sounds like a pretty good week to me. That sounds like a week where I could just sort of breathe deeply and live freely and just be able to give life away because I'm no longer hoarding it. 
I think this is what Paul wrestled with in his issue of identity. It was a great challenge for Paul in his call, his conversion. He went completely a different direction. He went in the direction of grace. He went in the direction of welcoming the Gentiles. And that may not mean nothing to us at this time in our life, at this time in our history. But for Paul, he was at total odds with many of his peers and his friends and his former life. And this is why I think he speaks so directly of his own personal experience with Christ. And this is what he writes. Am I trying to win over human beings or God? Am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I wouldn't be Christ's servant. You see, even Paul acknowledges that I can't be trying to live for people's approval and to please them and at the same time live freely and openly as to who I truly am. So I choose the latter because I know Christ loves me and is joyful over me and I am God's beloved and I need to live in that freedom. See, I think Jesus' story is our story. It's Paul's story is our story. We need identities deeply anchored and rooted in God's deep love to know that we are God's beloved, that God delights in us, that God loves us, that God is happy with us. And I want that phrase to stick for a few minutes. I think we know God loves us. I think we know that God delights in us. But just think about that for a moment. God is happy with you. God is absolutely happy over you and about you. And nothing delights God more than your existence and who you are. Henry Nouwen wrote an awful lot about God's love and his identity. It's one he struggled with. And he writes this. This is the identity you have to accept as a child of God, that you are a child of God. Once you have claimed it and settled in it, you can live in a world that gives much joy as well as pain. You can receive the praise as well as the blame that comes to you as an opportunity for strengthening your basic identity. Because the identity that makes you feel free is anchored beyond human praise and blame. Now, I think there's a couple fruits of living as God's beloved and having our identity grounded, rooted, and anchored in God's love. They're just very simple. I think the first fruit is this. We live as free people free to be who God has called us to be, free to offer our weaknesses and vulnerability, free to fail, free to make mistakes, free to offer our truth, free to live authentically, free to be. This is what it means to live life to the fullest, to live the abundant life as offered to us in Jesus. And then I think we are free to live as people that allow others to freely be who they are, to see them as God's beloved, as persons of infinite value, and worth in the eyes of God, and also in our eyes. And we begin to relate to others as God relates to us. And in that process, experience the joy of being people who live out of generous, abundant hearts, who practice self-giving love, because by giving love away, we don't lose anything. We no longer have to hoard love in order to prop up our ego or identity. God's love is abundant, plentiful, and the person in front of us is also this recipient and result of God's deep and abiding love. How would your week be different if the folks you came into contact with, your family, your friends, your colleagues, complete strangers, you saw them as beloved of God, as deeply valued by God? I kind of think that's maybe what you were getting at, Glenn. And thank you for sharing that. How would your actions toward them be different? Maybe you'll express more appreciation and affirmation. Maybe more acceptance. Maybe you'll 
try to keep from labeling them or categorizing them and simply accept them as they are. Maybe you'll offer them deeper courtesy and respect or even some type of helpful action. One of the exercises I have done this past week, and I am a competitor. I don't like to admit it, but I compete. I compete with everything. I compete and I just compete. And what I realize is part of that competition is I don't want anybody else to win because if someone else wins, I lose, and that reflects upon my sense of worth. I know it's crazy, but I'm a work in progress. So what I have tried to live this past week is to be intentional about living out of this abundant place to say, I don't always have to win. I don't always have to be first. I don't always have to get it right. I don't always have to get all the recognition. I don't always have to get all the affirmation. And sometimes I may get the blame. Sometimes I may get criticized. But to live in that abundant place of saying, but you know what really matters is that I am in that place of God's delight and love and happiness. And as I live out of that, I would just begin to breathe deeply and freely and say, that's what matters the most. And to be able to share that with people. And I have found, not perfect, but I have found that I've been able to just relax and live more generously with people and cheer them on and offer them something and let them know how proud I am of them. And even if I don't agree with them or accept their opinions or buy into their theology, to listen to them and bless them and send them on their way. I think we see this in the life of Jesus in the Gospel of John because in the Gospel of John, Jesus' identity is so rooted in God's love, Jesus is able to listen deeply to a Samaritan woman hungry for relationship. He's able to patiently and lovingly guide a religious leader named Nicodemus towards new life. And he offers a woman caught in adultery grace rather than condemnation. And he sees all these people and he just blesses them and lives out of that abundant place of God's love and offers them freedom because he knows what that freedom is like. I'll just close with this. I used to collect baseball cards. Big shock there, I know. As a kid, I had all these baseball cards. had a shoebox, and I divided the shoebox up between American League and National League and had a little cardboard divider right in the middle. And I would pick some up. I'd buy them out of the ball game. I didn't go for that, those 3D cards. Those were like, you know... That was a passing fad. I went for the real cardboard card, you know, tops and, and, and all of that. And I had a whole stack. And then somebody gave me a lot of cards. And these were cards, you know, in the 40s and the 30s and the 50s. And, and I had those cards, and I carried them for a long time, and I hid them in places in my bedroom so my mom couldn't find them because they were good stuff. And then I got older. And then I think I just looked at them and said, why does a grown person keep cards? And so I got rid of them. And then as I got older, I realized, as I looked online, there's things called eBay, and there's things called <laughs> Craigslist, and there's things that have plastic folders in them, and you put cards in them, and people make money off of these things. And I had that card, and I know who that is. And I had the rookie card of, of, of Fergie, Fergie Jenkins. Cubs fan know who that is. I had these cards. I tossed them all out because I didn't think they were any value. I didn't think they were worth anything. I mourn the day that I toss them out. <laughs> I, wish, I wish at some point 
I had realized their possible value. So, here's my bottom line. Let's not toss away the possibility of abundant living because we don't realize the value of our existence. Let's not toss away a life of joy and flourishing and freedom because you just simply do not realize the value of your existence and your worth in the eyes of God. Don't toss it away. Hang on to it. Fight for it in a Quaker way, but fight for it. Don't let it go because it is the one gift and treasure that will mean so much to your life and absolutely change your life in a way that nothing else will.